0: Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Our scripture for this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. If you guys would please rise for the reading of God's holy word. that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus Christ. So we then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, God, we have come into your house this morning. We have praised you with our mouths. And now, Lord, we ask that you would pray, that you would prepare us to praise you with our minds that you would open the hearts of my hearers to the words that I'm about to preach, that you would open my mouth to be able to speak your truth and what is said and what is heard, Lord, that it would transform all of us as a church and that we would move out on mission for you. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. At this time, for our little kids, we go out with Miss Sharon. She's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. So, yesterday was January 1st, and it was 80 degrees outside. (laughs) I know that because my wife and I went for a walk around our neighborhood, and I sweat through everything I had on. It was magical. It was a magical Texas Christmas. So great. Just awesome. All the kids were out in the street, everybody was playing, and as we kind of went around uh, the street uh, towards the end of our block, there's a cul-de-sac, and these little girls, and I can tell they're little girls because little boys don't play with chalk, or at least when they do, uh, they don't write things legibly, so I'm sure it was little girls, had written a bunch of Happy New Year's messages all around the sidewalk. Now, where I'm from, we call that graffiti, but apparently now that's cute, so something that we can do. Uh, they were they would write, you know, Happy New Year's 2022, uh, and at one place in this big open cul-de-sac, they had written down um, New Year's resolutions with like bullet points, and then people that had been out and walking would write, would pick up the chalk that they left there, which again, where I'm from is called littering, but it's not important, I don't want to crush their little hearts, uh, would write down what their New Year's resolutions were for the year. Um, And and it was interesting to kind of see these, you know, and they they were pretty standard, right? They were the standard New Year's resolutions that most of us have, like, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to sleep more, okay, I'm going to, what, what are some other things that we, that we say every year that we're going to do that we never do? Because that's what a New Year's resolution is, right? It's something that we say we're going to do at the beginning of the year that lasts like a week. Anyway, what, what's a New Year's resolution you made? Anybody? Well, lose weight, right? Yeah, lose weight. I make that resolution every single year. You see where it is? I lose the weight, but then I find it again. Sometimes I find the weight that y'all lost. I do that too. What's, what's another New Year's resolution that people make? Save money, right? We're going to be better with our finances, right? We just got done spending all of our money. Like, we went into debt to buy stuff that people don't need, some of whom we don't even like, right? But now, all of a sudden, when those credit card bills come, now we're going to be good. You know, you know one of my, one of my uh, resolutions was, uh, this year I'm going to do my taxes in the year that they're due like that's a that's a thing that i'm gonna i'm sorry i I apologize you don't don't get on me chris right we all have these new year's resolutions that we that we come up with right we all have these things that we decide we want to do and yet statistically right experts tell us most of them are going to last about two weeks we're going to start them we're going to start with, uh, with every fiber of our being. We're going to try to eat better. We're going to go to the grocery store. All of the eggnog is gone. And now in its place is Slim Fast, right? Which is pretty much eggnog, but I, it's like rebranded. I don't know. And it's going to work for a little bit. And then slowly, or maybe even suddenly, we're going to slip back into the patterns that we have been going through. Right? Now, I don't know if this saying is attributed to him. We attribute it to Albert Einstein. You know the saying that doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results is called insanity. Whether it came from Albert Einstein or not, it does seem to ring true, right? All of us want to change our lives. All of us want to be different, and yet none of us actually ever change the things that we're doing. Well, if we do... We change small things at the periphery and expect major changes to come from them. And so, one of the things that we have to ask as Christians coming into the new year is how do we actually change who we are? Because let's be real, I need to lose weight, I I need to be better with my money. I need to do all of the things that I say that I want to do. And yet, as Paul said, that which I long to do, I cannot do, and that which I hate doing. I don't really hate eating cake, but you get the idea. That's what I do. How do we change sinful broken, destructive patterns in our lives? And more importantly, how do, once we've made those changes, how do we keep from slipping back into the person that we used to be? It's a critical question. It's a critical question because of the constant temptation to return to our old life. Now, this is not a new question for Christians. This is a question that we have been facing since the first days of Christianity. Whether it was Gentile Christians returning to the paganism that they came from or Jewish Christians returning to the law, there is a tendency and entropy in Christianity to leave this new life that we have. One one of my favorite pastors growing up used to describe it like this. He said, you know, I've crucified myself, but I keep pulling my hands down. It's kind of gory, but it's a good example. See, the body doesn't like to be crucified. We don't like to die to ourselves. And so what we do is we constantly pull our hands down and try to stop the process of being turned into something new. Christians have always been pulled back to their previous ways of living and seeing the world. And our text this morning is a great example of that. The book of Galatians is probably one of our earliest known books in the New Testament. I know that it it doesn't come at the beginning of the New Testament, but just take my word for it that it is one of the earliest books that we have. It was written probably before, it was written definitely before the Gospels. It was definitely written before the book of Romans and most of the other books in the New Testament. The book of Galatians is one of the first letters that we have. It was written by Paul to the church in galatia. and i kind of understand what that is if you look at a map today and you're like, "well, where is galatia? there's no country called galatia." okay? galatia is a old term that's used to describe what is kind of the southern coast of what is now turkey. Okay, it, is a, it was an area that was settled by uh, Gaulish tribesmen out of what is now France. And so all these tribesmen came down. They stole and burned and destroyed things. And they were like, wow, this is really nice down here. We should probably like settle. And so they settled. And when the Romans came through, they were like, oh, look, these people are all long-haired, hippie Gauls. We'll call this Galatia. And the name stuck. Now, why does Paul write a letter to them? Well, on his first missionary journey, Paul left Antioch and went through Galatia planting churches. And as he would plant a church, he would kind of establish it and lift up some elders, and then he would go on to someplace else, and then he would write letters back to those churches. Every letter that we have from Paul is a letter that he wrote to a church that he planted. Or in the the case of Romans, it's a church that he wants to go to. And so what is he saying to Galatia? Well, there, there was something disturbing happening that he was seeing. See, as Paul would go from church to church and, and and would then write letters back to them and hear how things were going, he realized that there was a group of counter-missionaries. There were other people that were following behind him and changing the gospel that he was preaching. They were encouraging Christians to revert back to who they used to be. Sometimes that meant becoming pagans, and sometimes, in the case of the Galatians, it meant returning to the Old Testament law. Now, who were these Judaizers, these false missionaries? Well, they seem to have been well-meaning people coming from the church church in Jerusalem. See, this is one of the ways that we know that the New Testament is not something that just somebody made up later on. It shows us the apostles, warts and all, mistakes and all. See, James, the brother of Jesus, had become a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and James and Paul had a disagreement about about the relation of grace and law. You can see that disagreement in kind of a lighter way by reading James and then reading Romans. And you're like, wow, okay, how do I balance this? We've had lots of conversations here about how we balance those two things. But we begin to see in the book of Galatians how this played out. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul is responding to the false gospel that's been luring some people away. And he does this, he responds by talking about a meeting that he had with James and Peter and then some of the things that came out of that. He said, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now what on earth does that mean? Who is Cephas? Well, Cephas is Peter. You remember Peter from the Gospels? Peter the fisherman, Peter the rock, right? He had his, his brother, Andrew, macho man. Like, th- that's, who, this, that's who we're talking about here. James, uh, 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 Paul and Peter had a disagreement, and it was a disagreement over how they were supposed to treat the Gentiles that were among them. He said, for before certain men came from James... This is James in in Jerusalem, James the brother of Christ, James the author of the book of James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, who on earth is the circumcision group? That sounds like a really terrible name for a band or maybe an awesome name for a band just depending on where you come from. (laughs) Not here to judge. The circumcision group were a group of Christians that were teaching people that you had to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be a Christian. Put another way, they they saw Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism, right? Which in many ways it is. But in their mind, in order for you to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And that means for men being circumcised... And for everybody, keeping the Old Testament dietary laws and not associating with Gentiles. That's what they were teaching. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. See, these missionaries seem to be arguing that Paul was a lesser disciple than Peter and that James was consequently, uh, that they were under James's jurisdiction, that the early church in Jerusalem had the ability to kind of control the things that were going on, and Paul was preaching something false. That seemed to be what they were saying. And Paul's mission here is to disabuse him of this. His opponents wanted to temper the freedom of the gospel with the certainty and the comfort that comes from rules and traditions. Let's be real here. The gospel is disruptive. The freedom that the gospel brings can be incredibly disruptive, especially to people that are used to living under a set of laws. Disruption is scary. I was talking to my my wife, this Christmas, uh, I was talking to her about how when I uh, the, one of the reasons that I went into the Corps of Cadets when I was in, in college was that I knew myself and, and that I knew that if I did not place boundaries and rules on my life, that I would not wake up on time and I would flunk out of college. And so for four years in college, I had people yelling at me and telling me what to do because literally it was the only way that I could function. There's a power in tradition. There's a power in rules that keep us on the straight and the narrow. And the people in Jerusalem were afraid of losing the benefit of these rules, these laws, these traditions. But there was something else that was going on here too. See, the rules and the traditions of Judaism gave Christianity cover. The Roman Empire was not a friendly place to monotheistic religions. Roman Empire was great about taking other people's religions and folding them together and creating kind of this melange of different faiths. If you were from Greece and you wanted to worship Zeus, they were like, that's cool, we'll just rename him, it'll be fine. It'll be great. But in Christianity, we believe that there's only one God, right? That there's only one way to worship. And so the Romans would oppose this, and the Romans would persecute those who did not accept the Roman gods, with one exception. If you were a Jew, you had a kind of a blanket dispensation. The Jews were so crotchety and so mean and so obstreperous that the Romans were like, it's not even worth it. You guys worship whoever you want to worship, just pay your taxes and it'll be fine. And so long as the Christians could say that they were the Jews. The Romans didn't mess with them. But when they stepped out from underneath that hedge of protection, well, then the Roman government began to lay the hammer to them. Okay, so there were people in the Jerusalem church that said, no, 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 we can't not be Jews because then we'll lose our protection. This is one of the reasons that change can be so hard. It is desperately scary to give up aspects of our identity that have worked for us in the past. I had an instructor at Mountain Warfare School that he used to tell us, he said, trails are there because that's where people walk. It's the easy place to walk. So everybody takes the easy place to walk, and that's where you get a, a trail. That's what happens in our lives. We do the things that we do because they're easy or they're comforting. I'm fat because I like to have a cookie with my coffee in the afternoon. I do. It's comforting to me to have a cookie or five or six cookies with my coffee in the afternoon. It makes me feel good. It is a pattern that has been worn into my life so much so that even now that I can't have grain. I still want to have a cookie even though I know it's going to tear me apart. We slip into these old patterns that are comfortable and easy. And we don't want to change them. It's scary to give up aspects of our identity that have worked for us in the past. After all, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And so we fall into this trap where we're like, oh, I'm just going to kind of tweak my life around the edges. I'm going to find those little things that that maybe uh, instead of eating a cookie with my coffee... I'll have a candy bar because chocolate has antioxidants and natural cancer fighters. So it's it's right. Get it. Get it, girl. It's my wife. Love her. Okay? We make these little tweaks. We're like, well, you know, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this small change to my life, and that's gonna that's gonna fix everything. I don't really wanna give up larger issues, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop, I have a problem with alcohol, so I'll stop drinking before five on weekdays, right? That's, that's called self-control for some of y'all, okay? It's because we ignore the reality that most of the negative conditions in our life are interwoven in who we are. It, it, like last night, I go to, to put all the, the plants inside the house, Because it's going to freeze, and I don't want them to die again. And and I go out, and and we have this, this, this ivy that we got a long time ago, right? And it's like we've tried to kill it like 12 times, and it just keeps coming back. And I'm like, well, I guess maybe I should take care of it. So I, I go to pick the pot up out of our garden, and, and, and it's dark, and I pick it up, and it yanks it out of my hand, and the pot breaks, and it goes everywhere. I'm like, oh this is my love, Ivy. Now our love's going to die. I'm trying to put it together. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was the ivy had grown down and, and gotten into the garden itself. It had planted itself in the garden, and so I had to, like, lift it up and put it together and figure out how to put it in a pot. That's what our habits are. Our eating habits, our drinking habits, our dating habits, all of these things are interwoven into our life and you can't just cut out one small part of them. The dysfunctional patterns in our life are part and parcel of who we are. You can't just cut a little part out of it. You have to make fundamental changes in your life if you're going to overcome them. To fix one part of our lives, often we have to upend huge parts of our life. This is why change is so hard, because we don't want to do that. And so Paul responds to the Judaizing Christians by demonstrating the absurdity of seeing Christianity as just a minor tweak to a otherwise functional Judaism. Like if, if, we, if we took Judaism and just kind of laid some Jesus on top, that made everything okay. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, you know that this is broken. You, you know that it's impossible to follow this law, that these rules are not, we, we can't do it. Now, how did Paul know this? Paul knew the law. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law better than Cephas. He knew the law better than James. He knew the law probably better than anybody else in the the New Testament church. He had trained his entire life under Gamaliel from the time he was a small boy to the time he was in middle age. He had built his life around the study of the law. He was a Pharisee somebody who believed that radical commitment to purity under the law was the only way that the Messiah was going to come back. This man was a true believer. The way only a fanatic can be a true believer. He was the kind of man that believed this stuff so much that he would go house to house, dragging people out into the street and using the threat of force to make them recant their faith. That was Paul. Paul understood the law, and he understood that the law was not keepable. He knew that there was no way to be justified by the law. See, he knew that James and Peter were in danger of drifting back into their old, comfortable way of living and seeing themselves, and he took the intervention... Straight to them. He called them out publicly. See, this is another aspect of change that's important. It's not just enough that you make a decision like you're going to change your life. Like, oh, I'm going to give up doing this or that thing. I'm going to eat less or drink less or or sleep more or read my Bible more or whatever. If there's no accountability there, if you haven't surrounded yourself with people in your life who have the permission to call you on your garbage... And nothing's going to change. The need for accountability is critical. Sometimes it takes real friends to tell us something that we know but don't want to hear. Somebody who can see into our blind spots and call us on our garbage. See, if we're serious about change, we're going to invite that kind of transparency into our life. We're going to have people in our life who have permission to speak to us the way Paul did. See, Peter and James were in danger of drifting back into reliance on the law for salvation, and so Paul begins to disabuse them of this. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If we build what I dest- if I build what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. See, he's reminding. Peter, that salvation didn't come from observing the law. No one was ever justified before God through the law. The law doesn't save, and it's never saved. In Romans, he says it this way, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be an heir to the world, but through faith. Over and over and over again through the Old Testament, we see that the people are not justified by their observance of the law, they ab- They are saved by the faith that they have in the one that's going to come, the faith that they have in the promise. People have always been justified by faith. When Christ came, he opened the floodgates of grace. To all mankind. And so the law that had been there to kind of protect them and keep them hedged in so that they wouldn't wander away, that doesn't need to be there anymore. The law is fulfilled. And so there's no, there's, there's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's not like Peter doesn't know this. Peter's the one who had the vision that opened the doors up. Peter is the one who began ministering to the Gentiles. Back when Paul was wandering around in the desert trying to figure out who he was, Peter was out there ministering to the Gentiles, planting churches. But now Paul has to come to him and say, what are you doing, man? You're not going to eat with Gentiles anymore? What is that? Who does that? Peter had fallen back on his own traditions, his old way of doing things. He was trying to preserve his identity. He was bowing to the hardline conservatives back in the Jerusalem church. They were trying to resurrect a wall that they had just spent years and years tearing down. But Paul wants them to fully understand that Christianity was about radical transformation by Christ. It's about identity, not heritage or tradition or philosophy. That's what saves radical transformation. As Christians, we understand that the pathway to a new life is through radical transformation. It's not through little changes around the outside. It's not tweaking small things that are going on in our life. It's not about excising this or that little problem that we have. If we want to change, we have to totally change. The whole thing has to be cut up and moved. All change comes from radical change. Benjamin Franklin famously had a, had a moral improvement plan that he would follow, that he was trying to be a better person. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. He was a self-admitted deist kind of, he was kind of like Oprah. I mean, he was just like out there kind of making it up as he went along. And, and so what he decided is, I want to be a good person. I don't really want to go to church So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a list of all of the bad things that I do. And then every day I'm going to work on one of them until I have it taken care of. And then I'm going to move to the next thing. And I'm going to work on that until it's taken care of. And before you know it, I'll be perfect. Now, based on what other people said about Benjamin Franklin, he was definitely charming and very, very smart, but definitely not perfect. You can ask any of the women that he had affairs with in France. He was definitely not a moral guy. Because that's not how we make ourselves better. You can't go and pick out one bad thing about yourself and try to fix it and then move on to the next one because the bad thing that you just fixed will pop back up. It's like whack-a-mole. Y'all remember whack-a-mole back at Chuck E. Cheese? Anybody go remember Chuck E. Cheese? You have a little hammer and you put your money in the machine and then every time the little mole comes up, you hit it with the mallet and then you just keep going around and the moles keep coming back up and you keep hitting them and then the tickets come out and you use it to go buy garbage, okay? It's whack-a-mole. That's what that type of moral improvement looks like, and it doesn't work. The only way you can be better is by taking the whole thing, upending it, and changing it. Radical transformation. And so what does Paul say? He proclaims the nature of Christian life in terms of death and rebirth. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law then Christ died for nothing. <sighs> it's through the law he had died to the law. His knowledge of the law brought him to a place where he realized that it could never be fulfilled. This is the pathway of most of the great reformers. This is the same story that Martin Luther went through. As he tried desperately to live a righteous life, only to realize that he couldn't. That there was no amount of fasting or penance that would allow him to come to the righteousness of God. That only through grace alone could he be saved. Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, and it fundamentally changed him. He understood that only radical transformation by the presence of Christ could change a person off the destructive path that they were on. And guys, that that applies to all of us. Paul was crucified with Christ. He put his old life to death, sacrificing it on the cross with Christ, and his new identity is found in Christ. Paul wouldn't return to his old way of relating to God and the people around him because he had been changed. He couldn't return to his old identity because it was dead. So we come back to this need that we have at the beginning of the year to reinvent ourselves. It's laudable. It's really, it's a good instinct. But guys, it is a fool's errand if we don't address the root of our problem. Year after year, we promise ourselves that this year's going to be different. And year after year, we end up doing the same things that we always do because we are trying to change the outside without tackling the inside. It's like, it's like having an infection that's sealed over, but it's still full of corruption. You've got to drain all that out. We've got to open it back up and dig out the infection that's in us. If we really want to change, we've got to do it from the inside out. We must die to who we used to be so that we can live the lives that God has for us. See, it's not just enough to become a better version of who you used to be. If you want to be actually better, you have to become a new creation, something that you never were. Listen, we we don't indulge in vices out of the love of the vice itself. We indulge in vices because they, f- they fill voids in our life. Maybe you get drunk because it, it numbs the pain of an empty, failed life. Maybe you eat to excess because the food provides comfort when the stress of the world or family threatens to crush you. Right? We stress eat. Food is Love. We eat our feelings, whatever you want to call it. I do all of those things, by the way. They're all great. Maybe you're looking for love in all the wrong places because you never felt truly loved or you don't feel like you deserve love. Maybe you gossip about other people because tearing down another helps you to ignore your own inner pain or your own insecurity. I don't know what your baggage is or your garbage is. I just know that you have it. And that it comes from brokenness and emptiness inside of you. See, regardless of whether you get drunk, get high, eat too much, gossip, sleep around, whatever those things are, you are trying to fill a hole. And it's, a, it's a hole that is shaped like God. You can fight the particular vice or the particular problem. You may may even be successful for a little bit, but you will never deal with the fundamental problem until you excise it. Until you realize that your soul is sick, and the only the only cure that you have is Christ. You can go on a diet, but only the bread of life will truly curb your hunger. You can try drinking less, but only living water will quench your endless thirst. You can try really hard to stop sleeping around, but only by accepting the love of Christ will you find the ability to truly love and be loved. If you want to change your life, the answer is not to drink less or eat less or stop smoking dope. It's to define yourself differently. It's to find your identity in Christ and st- to stop trying to fill the void in your life with the things that are not God. And guys, that takes radical change. Th- that's not something that you can just buy a part of or, or, or accept a little bit of. You, you know it, It's not like the, the sushi choo-choo train that comes by and you can take a little of this and, and then ignore the rest of it. No, no, you have to take the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. Sushi choo-choo. You've got to take the whole thing. Be transformed completely. If you are a Christian, the true change begins when you acknowledge that you are different from who you used to be. See, many of us have come to Christ, but we don't accept that we've come to Christ, We, we don't accept what that means. We come to Christ, we accept Christ, but we don't really believe that we're forgiven. And so we keep trying to make up for the things that we did in the past. We keep trying to torture ourselves and punish ourselves for the horrible things that you did. I want you to hear me. Nobody in this room has done anything nearly as bad as the things that I've done. I mean that. That's not hyperbole. I will never be good enough to undo the harm that I have done to people. And and that's okay. I don't have to. Christ took all of that from me. And whatever you're carrying in here, whatever is owning you right now, whatever is preventing you from living real life in Christ, God has taken that on the cross. It's done. He threw that as far as the east is from the west. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he was talking about that. And the pathway to new life as a Christian begins at that point. Brothers and sisters, we have to accept that. But it doesn't end there. See, if we're new creations, if God really has taken that stuff and taken it someplace where we can't touch it, we have to stop trying to go back to our former identity. Oh, man, that's hard. That's been hard for God's people from the very beginning. How much of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the people griping and moaning because they desperately want to go back to slavery? To slavery! You know all the bad scenes from... From the Ten Commandments where the dude's in a, like, a, like a linen diaper, like treading in the mud pits. He's like, oh, if only I could go back to the mud pits. That would be so good. Rather than living in the presence of God in the middle of the desert eating quail every day that I don't have to catch myself. That's in our nature, guys. We desperately, desperately want to go back to who we used to be. When we thought everything was great. We have to begin to live out the implications of the change in our life by accepting our forgiveness, by turning our head away from who we used to be. Brothers and sisters, if you've never done that, the problem you may be facing right now is not that you haven't accepted the change that's happened to you. It may be that the change has not happened to you. See, if you've never accepted Christ, then you don't have that new life. Then all your sins are still on you. That you are still bound by who you used to be. And hear me. If you do not have Christ in your life, there is literally nothing that you can do to redeem yourself. No matter how many wells you dig. How many kittens you save out of trees how many dogs you rescue or people you rescue, none of those things will redeem you. The only thing that will redeem you is having a relationship with Christ. So as we come into this new year, as we seek to try to change ourselves, I want to encourage you. You start by accepting Christ. That's the beginning of your new life. That's how your life changes. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to have some deacons down front. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I want to encourage you today. Come down. Pray. If you don't know how to pray, we'll teach you how to pray. Just don't leave this place with your life uncommitted to him. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, we come to you desperate to become new creations. And so Lord, we ask you today that you would crucify us again with Christ so that it would not be us who live, but you who live in us. That this life that we live with you and the Father would be based on the love of Jesus Christ. God that you would come into us and transform us if we know you, that you would be real to us, that you would remind us of who you are, that you would give us the ability to drop these bags that we carry. And Lord, if there is any who do not know you in this room today, Lord, I ask that you would transform them or change their heart. Bring them to a place where they can know you. Help them to drop all of the baggage that they're carrying and just cling to you. Cry out, I'm tired and I'm done. Take it all. Lord, we pray right now, God, that you would come into this place with fire and that none of us would leave this place unchanged. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.